It's such a letdown to rise from the dead and have your friends not recognize you. The gospel writer John tells us that when Mary saw Jesus after his resurrection, she did not realize it was Jesus. Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. Now, I love that line, thinking he was the gardener. It is such a loaded comment. Let me explain. Jewish writers like John did things like this all the time in their writings. They record what seems to be random details. Yet in those details, we find all sorts of multiple layers of meaning. And there are even methods to help us decipher all the hidden meanings in a text. Now, one of these methods is called the principle of first mention. Whenever you come across a significant word in a passage, you find out where this word first appears in the Bible. And John does this in his gospel. The first mention of the word love is in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We then discover that love is first mentioned in the scripture in Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. John is doing something intentional in his word love here in his gospel. He wants his readers to see a connection between Abraham and his son and God and God's son. And John's readers who knew the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, would have seen the parallels right away. But back to the empty tomb and Mary's inability to recognize Jesus She mistakes him for a gardener. Now, where is the first mention of a garden in the Bible? Well, of course, it's Genesis 2, the story of God placing the first people in a garden. Now, what happens to this garden and those people who are in that garden? Well, they choose to live outside of how God made them to live. And they lose their place in the garden. Death enters the picture and paradise is lost. John tells us that Jesus is buried in a garden tomb and Jesus is mistaken for a gardener. Something else is going on here in the text. You see, John wants us to see a connection between the Garden of Eden and Jesus rising from the dead in a garden. There is a a new Adam on the scene. And he is reversing the curse of death by conquering it. As Peter puts it in his Pentecost sermon, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And he's doing it in a garden. He is reclaiming creation. He's entering into creation and restoring it and renewing God's plans for the world. And Jesus is God's way of 
refusing to give up on his dream for the world. Now, to look at God's restoration plan in greater depth, we need to go back to how God creates the world and what he thinks about it. The Bible starts with God making the ground and the seas and calling them good. God makes land that produces vegetation and it is good. Over and over, this word good is used to describe how God perceives what he has made. It is all good. But notice what God does with this good creation. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on, on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the next verse is significant. The land produced vegetation. Now, please do notice, it doesn't say God produced vegetation. God empowers the land to do something. He gives the land the capacity to produce trees and shrubs and plants and bushes that produce fruit and seeds. God empowers creation to make more. This happens again in Genesis 1 verse 22, when God blesses the creatures of the water and the sky and then says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. Once again, God gives creation. Here it is, fish and birds, the ability to multiply and make more. God doesn't make more fish. God gives fish the ability to make more. And I want to suggest that's an important distinction. God empowers his creation to make more. And in doing so, he loads creation with potential. It's going to grow and change and move and not be the same today as it was yesterday. And tomorrow it will move forward another day. Creation, in other words, is loaded with potential and possibility and promise. God then makes people whom he puts right in the middle of all this loaded creation, commanding them to care for creation, to manage it, to lovingly use it, to creatively order it. The words he gives there are words of, of loving service and thoughtful use. And from day one, which actually is really day six, they are in intimate relationship and interaction with the environment. These first individuals, they are environmentalists. Being deeply connected with the environment is who they are. And for them to be anything else or to, to deny their divine responsibility to care for all that God has made would be to deny something that is at the core of their very existence. And that's why, I suggest, litter and pollution are spiritual issues. That's why climate change, ecological and environmental issues are spiritual issues. And unless we realise this truth, we haven't really fully grasped what it means to be human and live in God's world. Everyone is an environmentalist. We cannot live independently of the world that God has placed us in. 
We are intimately connected to this world by God's mandate to us. Not only are we connected with creation, but creation is going to move forward. It can't help but do that. It is loaded with energy. It's going to grow and produce and change. And this point is central, I think, to the story. The Garden of Eden is not perfect. Nowhere in Genesis does it say it is perfect. The word the Bible uses is the word good. Now, there is a difference between good and perfect. When we say perfect, what we generally mean is something ecstatic or fixed and unchanging. It has reached a state in which there's going to be no more change. But this is not what Genesis says about the Garden of Eden. Good, however, means changing and growing and advancing and producing new things. And so these people are placed in the midst of this dynamic, changing, alive, vibrant environment, and they are charged with the divine responsibility of doing something with it, creating, arranging, ordering, caring for, doing something with it. And these first people have a choice to do something with it in harmony with God or to use it for their own purposes. And not doing something with it is a choice as well. Now, it would be a sin to abuse creation and distort it and rape it and exploit it, but it'd also be a sin to do nothing with it. Because doing nothing with it would essentially be saying to God, you have made nothing of interest to me. So what I'm saying is the issue of eating the fruit in the garden then is far bigger than Adam and Eve simply disobeying God. They are throwing off the whole deal. God made this magnificent world with endless possibilities of creativity and beauty and meaning and they miss it. They decide to steer the thing, the whole thing in a different direction a direction of their own choosing. God has given us power and potential and ability. God has given this power to us and he wants it, us to use it well. And we have choices about how we're going to use our power. And when those first humans sinned, their actions threw off the balance of everything the weather, the trees, the oceans. You see, it's all one. And when one part starts to splinter and fracture, the whole thing starts to crumble. These people cannot be separated from their environment. One part falls out of harmony and everything is effective, is affected. As Paul writes in the New Testament, the whole creation, look at that word, the whole creation has been groaning, groaning ever since is all thrown out of kilter. But this is how the Bible starts. Unlimited potential, unbelievable promise and possibility, and then the fracturing, splintering chaos. Now the question is, will creation always be like this? Fractured, chaotic? This has been the question for thousands of years. And central to the Jewish world of Jesus was the belief that God 
not only hadn't given up on creation, but he was also actively at work within it, bringing it back to how he originally intended it to be. And the, the prophets of the Old Testament had a way of talking about this restoration movement of God. They spoke of God reclaiming the earth, restoring the world. Now, they didn't talk about people going somewhere else at the end of time to heaven. They talked about God coming here at the end of time. Now, have you noticed what Jesus says about the end of the world in Matthew's gospel? He says this, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. Now, Jesus uses an important word here, renewal. Jesus describes his return as a, a rebirth, a regeneration, a renewal. And notice what Jesus says in the book of Acts about the same event. Heaven must receive Jesus until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And Peter uses a big word here in the book of Acts, restore. To restore is to make things how they once were, to renovate, to rebuild, to put back together the parts that are broken. And Paul puts it like this in his letter to the Colossians. For God, he says, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, Paul uses another significant word here, reconciled. Reconcile means to make peace where it has been lacking, to bring back things that are broken back together, to mend what is torn, to fix what is broken. And Paul wants to make sure that we grasp that this is a much larger issue than just, as it were, saving human souls. He uses the phrase, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, because he wants to see that this is all of creation that God has in mind in the sending of Jesus. All things really means all things, everything. Every bird and tree and mountain, star, every single square inch of this physical creation. In Jesus, God is putting it all back together. And you see, the cross of Jesus isn't just about human salvation. It's about the fact that God is interested in the saving of everything. Well, let's return to the garden, to Jesus rising from the dead, having conquered death. The early community of Jesus' followers saw in his resurrection the moment their people had been waiting for. God continuing, but in a new and significant way, the restoration of the world. And Paul goes as far as to say that Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits. A very Jewish way of saying, hang on, there's more to come. Now, in this first century, this claim of restoration, renewal, reconciliation had numerous social, political and economic dimensions to it. The world then was ruled by the Roman Empire. 
and the Roman Empire was ruled by a succession of emperors called the Caesars. And the Caesars claimed they were sent by the gods to renew creation. Caesar Augustus believed that as a son of God, he was God incarnate on earth. He called himself the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace had come to restore all of creation. Indeed, he, Augustus Caesar, inaugurated a 12-day celebration called Advent to celebrate his own birth. Now, doesn't that not all sound very familiar? His priests offered sacrifices and incense to rid people of their guilt. And one of the most popular slogans of the time about Caesar Augustus was this, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Caesar. Another phrase they often used was, Caesar is Lord. Now throughout the Roman Empire, the Caesars called on people to worship them as the divine saviors of mankind. And a city that acknowledged Caesar as Lord, interestingly, was called an ecclesia, a word from which we get our word church. Being a citizen of the Roman Empire was significant. It was membership in the most powerful kingdom ever. And all of society was ranked and ordered. Roman citizens were higher status than non-Roman citizens. Men were ranked higher than women. Slave owners and those who were free were ranked above slaves and slaves were seen as property to be owned. And then there was a kind of general masses. The majority of the population who weren't the ruling elite class, and they were seen just as fodder, really. You see, everybody had their place in society. Now, it's at this time in this world that the Jewish, the Jesus movement, exploded among an ethnic minority in a remote corner of the empire. The early Christians claimed that their leader was a rabbi, and uh, this rabbi had gone around and announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. This rabbi had been crucified and had risen from the dead, that was the claim, and appeared to his followers. And one of the favorite slogans of these Jesus followers was Jesus is Lord. Now just take a minute to reflect on the political dimensions of that claim. If Jesus is Lord, then what does it say about Caesar? You see, these first Christians were subverting the entire order of the empire, claiming that their Jesus was Lord and Caesar wasn't. And what do they call their gatherings? Well, they called them ecclesia, a word, as I say, that uh, translates into English as church. Another of their favorite slogans was, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved than that of Jesus. Shocking. Yes, they took political propaganda from the empire and changed the words to make it about their Lord, about Jesus. And to join up with these people, of course, was to risk your life. And not only this, but they made claims about the whole way society was structured. In a letter to the church in a region called Galatia, one of these first followers of Jesus, Paul, claimed that in Christ... There was neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, 
neither male nor, for, nor female. In doing that, he's calling the entire culture into question, insisting that through this risen from the dead Jesus, the whole world is being reorganized. And in this new reality, every person is equal. Everybody. We don't realize it, but Paul is the first person in the history of the world literature to argue that all human beings are equal. And not only were these first Christians subverting the dominant power structures of their world, but they were confident that the resurrected Jesus, the resurrected Christ, was working in them and through them to reclaim God's dream for the world. And the writer Luke gives us insight into what this confidence looked like in their everyday lives. Luke writes that those who had witnessed the resurrection had God's grace so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them at all. What was the result of the resurrection according to Luke in the book of Acts? No needy persons among that Christian community. Now remember, it's the Caesars who claimed that they were the ones who provided for everyone and who saved everyone. And it was the Caesars who made the world a better place. And for these first Christians then, the question was, who is Lord? Jesus or Caesar? Who orders society? Who provides for you? Who puts food on your table? Who brings peace to the world? And they said it wasn't Caesar, it was Jesus. And to be part of the church was to join a countercultural society that was partnering with God to create a new kind of culture right under the noses of the Caesars. And these Christians made sure everybody in their midst had enough to eat. They made sure everybody was able to pay their bills. They made sure there was enough to go round. And you see, for them, the resurrection was not just an abstract spiritual concept. It was a concrete social and economic reality. God raised Jesus from the dead to show the world that Jesus is Lord. And it is through his power and his example and his spirit that the world is restored. Now, I've noticed in my reading of scriptures that we rarely find these first Christians trying to prove that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. There was probably a number of reasons for that. One, for instance, was a lot of people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead were still alive. And if people had questions and doubts, they could talk to somebody who was actually there. But there's also another reason. Everybody's God in the first century had risen from the dead. To claim a resurrection had occurred was nothing new in the first century. Julius Caesar himself was reported to have ascended to the right hand of the gods after his death. To try to prove that there was an empty tomb wouldn't have got very far with the average citizen of the Roman Empire. They'd heard it all before, that's what I'm saying. And that's why so many passages about the early church deal with possessions and meals and generosity. They understood, these early Christians, that people are rarely persuaded by arguments, but more often by experience. 
experiences, living, breathing, flesh and blood experiences of the resurrection community. And they saw it as their responsibility to put Jesus' message on display. To the outside world, it was less about proving and more about inviting people to experience this community of Jesus' followers for themselves. And so these first Christians passed on the faith to the next generation, who passed it on to the next generation, who passed it on to the next generation, until it got to us today. And now I suggest it's our turn. It's our turn to step up and take responsibility for who the church is going to be for a new generation. It's our turn to redefine and reshape and dream it up all over again. It's our turn to rediscover the beautiful, dangerous, compelling idea that a group of people surrendered to God, filled with the Spirit, committed to really work out what it means, resurrection life, in everyday life, in political life, in social life, in every area of life, that that commitment can really change the world. Amen.